G'day everybody. My name's Glenn Hill. And I'm Jacob Meyer. Welcome to the Tactical Tennis Podcast. And Jacob, how strong do you need to be to play tennis? To play tennis? Or like just to start tennis? Not that strong. Like my grandmother could go out and play tennis. Right. The entry level requirements for tennis, as far as strength is concerned, are pretty low. But what about if you want to be a really good tennis player? Oh, well, for any player to get the most out of themselves, they actually need to have a really good base of strength. Yeah, and that's the thing that we really wanted to focus on today. We've done some podcasts in in recent times related to strength and conditioning. I think that for tennis, strength is actually a very complex thing and often we use strength as a blanket term, but we could probably split that up into several subcategories. That's right. A lot of the times when we talk about strength, we're really talking about different aspects of human athleticism. We have a strength aspect, stability aspects, explosiveness, and these things are really more distinct in themselves than they all fall under like the same umbrella term or even the same training for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that, that one of the things that started when we started out this, this whole conversation on, on strength, one of the things that we were asking is, well, where is this information available for tennis players? Yeah, I mean, I really started this, we started talking about this before we decided to record about it, just actually for our own games. I mean, to be honest with everyone, right? And my gut assumption was like, dude, there's so much stuff on strength and conditioning out there on the internet. Like there's so many things that you can find. There's got to be dozens of places where I can go and I can find really good, solid programs to just jump in and say like, look, here are the fundamentals, do this stuff and you're going to cover your basics and then after you become essentially an expert in these basics, then you can go on to more, you know, hyper precise kind of stuff and really work on like that last 10% as I like to think about it. Yeah, but I think that's part of the problem, right? Is that you're right in that there is so much information on strength and conditioning out there. But as it turns out, there's not a lot of high quality strength and conditioning i mean the, the the percentage of the amount of information out there online that is actually really good is relatively low yeah i think that's right i mean what i found when i went looking when i just started to search instead of for the you know the tiny little details that i'm interested in researching at this point in my life i just looked for like a good fundamental program i wasn't able to come up with anything and so that's why we're talking about this today, basically, right? Like it yeah. seems like this I mean, is harder to find than it seems like it should be. Yeah, I, I've noticed that a lot of the information that is out there online is very gimmicky. Uh, and then the other problem with a lot of what coaches are teaching is that it tends to be very dogmatic. And by what I mean by that is, and I had a lot of personal experience with this myself in that, you know, when I was a junior and I was playing ITFs and traveling all over the place to play, I we did a certain style of strength and conditioning for tennis. And that was considered, quote unquote, the cutting edge leading way to train for tennis at that time. 
And as I got older and I got into college and I'm playing college tennis and then immediately afterwards, there was a way in which I was continuing to think about strength and conditioning in the terms that I had learned about it in the 1980s. And, and here it was and it's 2000, 2002, 2003. And I'm still thinking about the, the physical training for tennis in the same terms, even though I didn't have any scientific basis to know that that was actually the best way for me to be training. You know, it's so, just, it's, it's this old thing, right? Well, that's how we've always done it. So you had a, essentially this dogmatic approach, right? Like this is how we've always done it. So this is, this is what must be right. I mean, how helpful was that really for you though? Because I mean, you were what most of us would consider a very competitive, very high level player. So, right. I mean, is it wrong to say, well, like obviously it worked? Well, I, I wouldn't say that it was terrible, right? This is the hard part is I, I think it's fair to say that the way that we were training back then, which I still see a lot of people doing today that are training for tennis, which is a lot of high repetition, almost what most people would consider circuit style training where it's lower weights and, you know, we come over here and do 20 push-ups. And then we rest 30 seconds. Then we jump over here and we do 20 leg raises. Then we jump over here and we do, you know, jumping jacks. Um, and I look, that does build a certain level of, of strength. Uh, but I think it's a really poor way to attack those three pillars that we talked about, which is strength, stability, and explosiveness. And the funny thing to me is when I look back now, I realize that most of the training that I did that contributed to my physical performance on the tennis court, I actually got from other places. And so the training that I did in martial arts was preparing me to play tennis better than the tennis-specific conditioning that I was doing at the time. Wait, so, okay. How does martial arts stuff prepare you better for tennis than your tennis workouts were? Well, funnily enough, most of the martial arts training that we did, the condition that we did in martial arts was built around a lot of strength, stability, and explosiveness. And whereas the tennis really training was built around, let me just do this thing for a really long time. And it's but like, just a I don't even mentality. I don't even think of martial arts training as involving like weightlifting. Well, you can certainly, as you know, you can do a lot of strength training. And I say strength as a... a Tributes to all three of these things, strength, stability, and explosiveness, without weights. Uh, it just turns out that when you do it with weights, it's even more effective for the most part. But there's a lot of isometric holds in martial arts. There's a lot of jumping. There's a lot of training explosiveness. Uh, and there's a lot of what we'd consider strength training too, a lot of push-ups and sit-ups and these kinds of activities. Um, and so, so maybe... Oh, go ahead. It sounds, it sounds like there's a lot of body weight exercise going on in the martial arts and that that actually had the effect of developing the strength in the places that you needed it to compete as a tennis player. Right. I think maybe another way to say that is that we train strength, stability, and explosiveness with the use of bodyweight exercises. And as I was saying, you, you can do that more efficiently, more effectively using weight as a general rule. Uh, but this might be a good moment to talk about uh, the, today – what we're going to really focus on is the strength portion of the strength, stability, and explosiveness. Uh, and so how would you define strength? Oh, 
strength fundamentally is your body's ability to move itself and produce force against some kind of resistance. Mm-hmm. Fair so enough. It would be, be something like that. Yeah, that, that's, I think, a good definition. And so can you have stability and explosiveness without good fundamental strength? Um, I mean, to some degree, yeah. You can have people that are much, much weaker than you would expect them to be that can be really explosive or that can have really good stability. Um, but, you know, these things all work together when they're done well, at least. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think the benefits of strength are just too important to ignore. Like strength can augment stability and explosiveness, but it's really, really important for its own sake. Yeah, it really is its own thing. And this is one of the things that I think we missed framing. At least I know I missed it when I was younger, and it sounds like everything you've described, it wasn't framed in these terms to you. But if you start the conversation with the understanding that these are rather distinct, but they all work together, right? Then I think it affects how you work out. I think the, you know, I mean, even for me, I'm on the tour, 90% of the workouts that I see players doing um, are really poor strength workouts, poor stability workouts, and non-existent in terms of actually developing explosiveness or speed for people. Um, but they don't think of them that way. And they, they do come from a sort of dogmatic background that you referenced beforehand, like this is how tennis players are supposed to train and exercise and, and work on their bodies to be able to play higher levels of tennis. Um, so, I, I mean, I like to just start there and say, like, look, strength is really important. You want to be strong. It's going to help you play tennis for a lot longer at a higher level. And you have to have it if you want to get the most out of your game, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the reason that we're starting with strength as uh, when we talk about all three of these things, which we will do, but the reason we're starting with strength is because strength is a critical piece of the puzzle when it comes to injury prevention. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of players want to start, like they feel like they're a good playing size, they're a good weight maybe, their fitness level is pretty good, but they want to be faster. They want to be, you know, serve harder. They want to hit bigger forehands or whatever. And so um, they do a little bit of research and they come across basically explosiveness and they want to do things like plyometrics and whatnot. But what you'll find is you have a really hard time doing them in a sustainable way without getting hurt. It, I mean, it's hard to put yourself in those other categories if you don't have a good base of strength. Absolutely. So when we start thinking about a strength program, I think it's really important to understand a principle here that is critical to the whole idea of this. Because what I often see when it comes to working out is people who are constantly changing what they're doing. And in the process, they lose sight of this. And this is an idea that any strength program that you follow should have a clear path to measurable progress. That's right. So you want to be able to keep track of your improvement on things. And in a way, I think it's really helpful to look forward 
maybe not look forward, but look over a large period of time here. So think about your strength development over a period of five years or 10 years. Don't think about it over how much better you're going to get in six months so you can beat that person at the club that you haven't been able to beat and you want to turn the tables on. Like, yes, that might be your motivation. But in order to do things well, think about long-term development, right? So let's just take, well, take any exercise. Let's not name a specific one. If you do it now versus you do it in six months and 12 months, two years and five years down the road, you want to see a dramatic difference after five years. You don't need to see a dramatic difference in six months. But in five years, you should be able to look back and say, look, I've, I know where I was five years ago. And I'm much, 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 much better now. And yes, if you and can, I, I think, well, I was going to say, for, for most people, I think that you, you will see a dramatic improvement in six months. And this is, I think, a critical part of this idea of having a clear path to measurable progress is people tend to jump around and do 80 different exercises in the gym and they don't stick with any one exercise long enough to actually get significantly better at it. Yeah, that's right. And you don't need 80 exercises for a program and you don't need 40 exercises for a program. The truth is you don't even need 20. You probably don't even need 10, right? So No, absolutely. I mean, I think we, we, when we look at strength training, there's three fundamental areas that we focus on. And those are pushing, pulling, and posterior chain. Within, yeah, within thinking of those big blocks, right? So the way to think about this is you need to be able to push well, you need to be able to pull well, and you need to have a strong and functional posterior chain, right? So we're going to go and talk more about what that exactly means. But we've talked about this a little bit in the past within developing a program to work on those three categories. We, we essentially just need to simply make sure that we stress ourselves enough to encourage adaptation and then that we give ourselves enough time to recover and that we repeat that cycle in a way that we don't overdo it. So we don't end up hurting ourselves and have to take time off. And so that we do it often enough so that we don't lose the adaptations. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so go ahead. So if we go back to pushing, pulling, and working on the posterior chain, where do you like to start? I have to pick one? <laughs> No, you don't have to pick one. Okay. <laughs> Realistically. Well, I think let's let's clarify what we mean by posterior chain, first of all. And that maybe that's where I'd like to start because I think that the posterior chain is the backbone of strength. And okay. when, when we talk about posterior chain, what we're really talking about is everything essentially from, I mean, to me, when I think about it, and you might think about it differently, Jacob, but to me, I think about essentially from the sternum down being your posterior chain. So it's your lower back, your glutes, your quads, your hamstrings, your calves, and all the other muscles that surround them. Yeah, I actually think about it all the way from from the atlas on down. I mean, I think about it as your whole spine all the way down. I think about it as the back part of your body. I don't know if that's more helpful or not. It's just that occasionally I see people with um, 
cervical control issues, meaning that they have a little bit of trouble controlling their neck. So anyway, we don't need to get into that stuff. Um, The point being, all those things that you named, that's the big stuff. Your posterior chain essentially helps keep you upright, right? Um, And that's going to be really important for things like walking and moving on a tennis court and running. And it also does things that we don't really think as much about like control hip extension, which is going to be the absolute foundation of rotation, which is something that we don't think that much about either. The point is that if you're not training your posterior chain, you're really missing out on probably most of the work that you need to do as a tennis player. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we start talking about specific exercises, however, I am going to add a qualifier. We're about to list a small handful of, you know, we said less than 10, and it's certainly going to be less than 10. We're looking more at five or six exercises that you can use to build a genuinely functional and effective strength program. If you are unable to do any of these exercises, and it is possible that some of them you can't do at present, uh, I think that one you should, before you attempt some of them, have your form checked by a professional who knows what they're doing. And if, if you are unable to perform some of these, then you should be working with somebody who can help you work through a progression and bridge that gap and get you to the point where you can do some of these exercises. Uh, just because we say, hey, you should be squatting, doesn't mean that you need to go out and start squatting right now, even if you can't do squats properly. What that means is that's something you should be doing. And if you can't squat properly, then you you need to work to get to a place where you can. That's right. And as someone who made a living in strength and conditioning for years, I would urge you to go out and work with someone on all of these things anyway. I mean, if you want to get the most out of yourself, then you're going to be working with coaches. And that's just the way it is. For sure. So, but it's important just from a safety perspective as well, because if you're going to get stronger, you're going to work through squats or deadlifts or any of these exercises, then having correct form is a critical piece of the puzzle. So yeah, having said is, that, yeah, having said that, having said that, let's talk about posterior chain. And to me, at least to build functional strength in your posterior chain and get a good fundamental strength in your posterior chain, we're, we're really only looking at two exercises and the first one we've mentioned already is squats and you know obviously there's a lot of different variations of squat out there you've got back squat high bar back squat low bar back squat front squats um but if you're not squatting then or not able to squat then you're leaving a lot of performance on the table and the second one would be the deadlift which i think is another exercise that everybody should be doing if they're physically capable of it And again, if you're not, you should be working towards that place. But between those two... Let me just interrupt you there. Yeah. Between those two, if you can squat really well and deadlift really well, you're probably mostly healthy in terms of your movement and your functional movement, right? I mean, I can't say anything for your mental health, although those exercises do help that. But if you can squat well and you can deadlift well, it sounds overly simplistic, but you're hitting so 
many of the major muscle groups in your body and you're hitting so much of the major coordination that you need both to live daily life and to perform athletically at a high level that you're going to have a pretty good baseline just from those two exercises. Yes, absolutely. So the reason that it's important to understand that is because if you think about this and you really understand how inclusive those exercises are, then it should start to make sense that those two exercises specifically are the ones that a lot of people want to avoid, right? Like, well, when I deadlift, it hurts my back or it hurts my shoulders or, you know, there's, I don't want to dismiss these things as excuses because they can be real. It can be symptoms of injuries that you have that have to be addressed before you can do the exercises. Our point is if you can get to a good place of baseline health and you can slowly build up and work on your strength in the squat and in the deadlift, then you're addressing your posterior chain really well and you're really learning how to apply force in a really meaningful way. Yes, that is 100% correct. I, I agree. Well, I should say that's, that seems very logical and seems to make a lot of sense. Um, so then let's talk about the pushing aspect. And this, I think, is probably where a lot of people who go to the gym regularly set themselves up for injury through the exercises that they do and the imbalance because of an undue focus on pushing as opposed to pulling. Mm, yeah. So pushing would be things like doing a bench press. Would, exactly. Would, and that becomes like one of the big marks by which most pe- people will measure strength. And, and because I think it, it, it develops, you know, the chest that there's an aesthetic portion that makes people tend to focus on it more than they should. And so what ends up happening is people go in and they do a lot of bench press and they get really strong at bench press and, you know, they think they're so strong, but they've been neglecting their, their pulling, which is the back the whole time. And, and that sets them up with an imbalance. And oftentimes I think doing just strict bench press is, is really limiting to shoulder mobility and they end up really in a bad place where they're, they might actually be physically stronger, but their function on the court can be limited as a result. Yeah, and you know that I don't have any of my professional athletes, and I mean, you don't either. We don't have any of them do traditional bench press, right? So right. What, do you, what do you recommend for pushing exercises instead of the traditional bench press that has become kind of the staple that people want to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's two exercises that people should basically be doing. And the first one is a bench press, but it's, it's not the traditional bench press with a barbell. It's a dumbbell bench press where you have a, a dumbbell in each hand or one hand, which we'll talk about in a little while. And there you're able to have the arms moving independently of each other, which gives your shoulders more mobility and, and forces the stabilizing muscles in your shoulders to do their share of the work independently of each other. And that's important from coordination. Uh, that's important for your joint health. And then the other one is an overhead press where we're either sitting, and I prefer the standing version, but where you're pressing the weight from chest level up to overhead with, with your arms up straight. 
and that one I, I personally, and, and maybe you can weigh in differently on this, but I, I feel more comfortable with people doing that one with a barbell or dumbbells, whichever they prefer. Um, I don't think because of the range of motion that you're going through and the angles that it's, it's as limiting as it is with the bench press. Yeah, the bench press actually has a tendency to hurt people's shoulders to some degree. Um, the movement pattern, I think, is kind of poor. The overhead press, the movement pattern isn't nearly so poor. I, I probably am a little bit of a bigger fan of doing it um, with dumbbells, but it really depends on what you want to train if you're really focused on uh, a strength or a stability aspect there. But that's something that I think we're going to talk about in a later podcast that we already have planned. Um, but definitely, you mentioned you can do it seated or standing. Uh, a very strong, strong recommendation for doing it standing. Agreed. And it carries over a lot more to tennis. And it's just a lot more, I mean, I hate to use this term sometimes because it's been sort of bastardized lately, but it's a much more functional exercise. Um, there's a lot more abdominal engagement. Your body has to stabilize your spine when you're standing. And it's just a more meaningful exercise. It's more helpful for people. So without going into it too far now, we've touched on this a couple of times now, um, talking about these last two exercises. You can see how there's this interplay between strength and stability at the very least. And they really are different aspects of movement, but movement is about coordination and you have to coordinate the strength aspects and the stability aspects together in order to move your body through whatever range that you want to move it through. So we're going to talk about that, I think, in the, the following podcast, right? About yeah. what stability really means and how to do more stability training. And so we'll tie that back into this. But for now... It seems like we've got a pretty good base if we look at just squatting, deadlifts, um, and overhead press, and uh, a dumbbell press, a ben dumbbell bench press. Then that's starting to look pretty good. How much stuff do we need to look at when we think about pulling exercises? Again, I think we can we can really look at two two exercises, and that'll get the job done. Um, the first is pull ups, and I say pull ups, not chin ups, but but pull ups. Uh, and if you don't have access to a pull-up bar or you're not quite there yet, you know, the lat pull-down using the machine, I'm not a huge machine fan as a general rule, but I think the lat pull-down is a, is a substitute or bridging exercise you can do. And then the other one would be a bent-over row, which attacks a different angle than the pull-up does. It, it engages the back muscles in a slightly different way than pull-ups do. Um, and it I'm also hits some of that stability that we're talking about as well. Yeah. I'm a big fan actually of bent over rows because when they're done well, they still engage the lats in a, in a very meaningful way. Um, but they also engage the posterior chain and a whole bunch of other stability stuff in a really meaningful way, in a way that pull-ups don't get to as much. So pull-ups yeah. can ar arguably be harder, um, or they can be more strength building than bent over rows, but bent over rows, ironically have a lot of carryover again i think to movement and to athletic sports like tennis for sure for sure and and so we've just laid out six basic exercises that would form uh, the foundation for good strength where we've got squats and deadlifts for your posterior chain 
overhead press and dumbbell bench press for your pushing and then pull-ups and bent over rows for your pulling. And you might be sitting there and saying, well, what about my biceps? How are my arms going to get strong? <laughs> um, newsflash, you have to use your arms when you do pull-ups or bent over rows. And pressing too. So if you think about your biceps, anytime you do a, a, a pulling, you're using your biceps, assuming that you are, are bending your arms at all. And then when you're pressing or you're pushing, you're using your triceps. And so one of the things that's great about training in this way where we're using multi-joint compound movements is that you are, we, we, you know, we talked a lot about movement being coordination. When you're lifting in a way that requires coordination, where you aren't isolating your bicep by doing bicep curls, but you're working your bicep really hard doing pull-ups where the bicep's learning to work in concert with your deltoid and your lat and all these other muscles and they're working together your brain is also therefore learning how to use them in concert as well yeah and i like that you mentioned that here i mean as we sort of wrap up these are the i mean it seems maybe too simple it seems crazy but really like this is what you need you could do this for years and you'll keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger but the point is to keep to keep doing each movement better to actually improve your quality of movement and you know this is the kind of thing that i really urge people to do more and more research on and to try and stay focused and and resist the urge uh, as you learn about more things to just add more exercises and add more exercises and, and kind of be like, oh, that's cool. That looks cool. Oh, now I can do this. So I'm going to add more cool stuff. But just keep getting better at the fundamentals. Um, I mean, we'd yeah. say the same thing about tennis, right? Like keep improving your fundamentals. And that's going to take you probably farther than anything else. Absolutely. So if we zoom out for just a moment and say, well, now that we've got these six fundamental exercises what does my strength training program look like? Well, it looks like you going to the gym and performing these exercises probably two to three times a week with appropriate amounts of rest in between to allow for your adaptations to occur. Remember our stress recover adapt cycle. And so you're going to the gym two to three times a week doing these exercises. You're writing down the weights that you're doing them with every single time without fail and when you are able to successfully complete sets at a given weight you're increasing that weight and so that the next time you go you're increasing the amount of stress so that you can keep forcing the adaptations and if you do that systematically over a period of six months to then a year, then two years, three years, you will see incremental improvements. And look, when you first start going, if you're not lifting a lot right now, you're going to get a lot stronger pretty quickly. And and then the, the strength gains will start to slow down because it's going to take more stress in order to force adaptation, which is the stuff that we talked about in the, in the episode 50 on the podcast. But But being systematic in your approach, writing down all of your results, recording everything, and then continuing to press, I say press not in the terms of push-pull posterior chain pressing, but, but, <laughs> but, press but continuing right? continue to push yourself to greater weight 
to greater performance. And, and then at the end of the day, when you look at six months, you can accomplish more in six months doing this than you might in three years of jumping around and doing, you know, a handful of this, a handful of that. And look, when it comes to rep ranges, there's a, there's a, a lot of discussion about this kind of stuff on the internet. I mean, the science has shown pretty conclusively, I think, and Jake, you might be able to speak about this a little more, that, I mean, the rep ranges don't, up to a point, don't matter that much. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that it does matter if you want to say, well, I'm going to do 50 reps, then you're really limiting yourself because you're not going to be able to do 50 reps of things that are really stressful enough to build adaptations for you. But, you know, there are whole communities out there that are arguing about whether or not you want to do three or four or five or eight or 12. And our point is just that you can get really strong doing any of those variations, right? Like it's not, all those communities are arguing basically over a couple of percentage points. And what we want to focus on is making sure that you're doing the fundamentals and doing them well and doing them consistently and, you know, leave the last two or 3% for when you're 97% efficient. Yes. And, and in those terms, like it doesn't matter really at the end of the day, if you go in and do three sets of five at a weight that's really hard for you, you're not going to see some magical and performance gain over going in and doing two sets of eight. If that, if you're doing that at a weight that's really hard for you, the main thing is doing it at a weight that's really hard for you. Yeah. If you push yourself and you know, you, the, the thing that you have to learn is how to push yourself and be near that edge, but stay far enough away from the edge so that you don't get injured. Um, if you can do that consistently, then you'll see consistent adaptation and you'll do really well. Absolutely. So folks, I, that's a lot of information and, and you, you might think that we're crazy. You might want to message us and say, you know what, my, my trainer has me doing this and that and whatnot. Look, we're, we're more than happy to engage you on that. We're more than happy to have a conversation and, and fill in some of these blanks. And I, this would be a great time to fill people in on how they can reach us. Man, I would love if you would send me some email and tell me about how wrong we are right now. You can reach me at jacob at tacticaltennis.com. And I'm at glenn at tacticaltennis.com. You can tweet at us. The Tactical Tennis Twitter account is tactical, at Tactical Tennis. And mine is at Glenn S. Hill. That's right. And you can find us on Instagram also at Tactical Tennis. So if you haven't already, follow us on Facebook. We post there occasionally. Uh, there's articles going up on the website. And I highly recommend that you sign up for the email. We don't send any kind of spam or, or anything like that. It's just kind of short informational pieces, almost like mini articles that go out in the emails periodically. Uh, and so that's probably worth your time if you keep wanting to learn about the types of things that we're teaching. And on that note, we'll wish you all some happy tennis and we'll catch you next time. Until next time, guys. See you.